The readings from 1 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bulls and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came out to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hand of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still to others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. This is God's word. Thanks, Johnny. Good evening. My name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister here, and it's uh, lovely to have you with us. It's lovely to be uh, working our way through 1 Samuel, this phenomenal story, uh, the history of how Israel got a king. Incredible, incredible story. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, how amazing it is that we find that this ancient book has such contemporary lessons. Father, give us humility, we pray, to be honest and open about our hearts. And we pray tonight that you would raise up your son, the Lord Jesus, that we might see how glorious he is, that we might trust in him and live confident, happy, fulfilled lives, certain that if we have Jesus, we have all we need. Amen. That felt pretty relevant and contemporary preparing this week. A passage all about uh, what is good leadership and seeing what's going on. This book that's so ancient feels incredibly contemporary. But before we uh, too quickly dive into 10 things that uh, Boris is not, that Samuel says he should be or, or anything like that, 1 Samuel is not really about nation states. It's not primarily a list of things that we should be looking for in MPs. It's primarily written about the rule of God's people. It's more about, if you like, the application is more about the church than the secular government. And the danger is, if we're so busy pointing the Bible at other people, those awful people breaking the rules, we forget that most of the time the Bible is pointing firstly at me. And I think we'll find, actually, as, as I prepared, I found, actually, there were, there were more uncomfortable questions about my own heart than I had realised on first reading. Let me put it this way. As I am a grammar Nazi, and so it pains me to put it this way. But the best way I can come up with to explain the take-home, the, the sort of summary of this passage, is this. Jesus is all the impressive you need. Yes, I know, it's ungrammatical, but it is basically what Jesus is all the impressive you need. What on earth do I mean and why is that even vaguely relevant to you in your daily lives? Well, for the Christians here, if we're honest, isn't it true that 
many, most of us, well, we feel more confident about our faith and our church and inviting friends who wouldn't call themselves Christians to come to things if our leaders were more impressive. I know it's hard to imagine me being more impressive than I am already, but yeah, actually, oh, if the leaders were really impressive, it would be much easier sell to bring people. But the message of these chapters is that when you look to impressive human leaders and put your focus there, you're trading down from what we actually have. Because Jesus has all the impressive we need. Let's see. Let's see. The question is going to come, do our lives show we believe that? But let's work our way through. So firstly, uh, the leader they need points them to God. So there you go. Uh, That's the summary, really, of chapter 7. The leader they need points them to God. Chapter 7 is the story of a battle. We heard that as, uh, as Johnny read it. But it's really there to show us what kind of leader God's people need if they're going to flourish as we prepare for the kings to arrive on the stage of Israelite history, what kind of leader do the people need? And the big point is the leader they need points them to God. And there's three ways that we see Samuel do that. Firstly, uh, Samuel, um, rather than preaches repentance, it's probably better to say, actually, Samuel calls them back to God. Verse 2, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals, their Ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Okay, so 20 or so years have passed since the Battle of Aphek. We saw last week where the Israelites lost the Ark of the Covenant. It was captured by the Philistines. And I think the implication of these verses is Samuel has been preaching God's word for 20 years. And finally, finally something's changed. Years and years of faithful preaching and suddenly God's spirit stirs the people. And they turn back to God, not just in in ones and twos, but we're told all the people of Israel turn back to God. This is an extraordinary movement of God's spirit. This is a revival that's taking place. And the content of Samuel's preaching is summarized by that word, uh, repent. If you're going to turn back to God, then rid yourselves. Return with all your hearts. Turn back. Repent is the religious word you've probably heard that's all it means it means you're going one way turn back go the other way and he explains what it means for them to truly turn back to the Lord in verses three to four do you see it Uh, firstly turn back with your whole heart in other words you cannot turn back to the Lord with all of my life except for how I go about my career or you can't turn back to the Lord with all of my life except how I spend my money You can't turn back to the Lord with all of my life except how I behave in relationships and according to sexuality. Now, to turn back to the Lord, you have to turn back with your whole heart. And then secondly, he says, uh, it's to turn away from the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Those are are the Canaanite gods. Those are um, pagan gods, idols, carved stone. He says, to turn to God means to turn away from them. If God is over here, God is holy, 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 not like anything else. 
He stands alone. And therefore, to turn to God, we can only turn to God by turning away from all the other things that we're tempted to put our trust in and look to for meaning and purpose and salvation. And once Samuel realizes the people, they really are serious about turning back to God, he gathers them at Mizpah, which seems to be the sort of NEC, the big conference center where they all gather in in the book of Judges and here in 1 Samuel. And they have a formal ceremony. Verse 5, then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. We're not told why they poured out water. Perhaps it's simply an expression of, uh, it's just a physical expression of we're pouring out our souls before you, God. Likewise, we're, we're not told why they fasted as they confessed. Now, fasting happens a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's never explained exactly why, but it always goes with one of two things. One is really earnest prayer when there's something we desperately need. Or two, confession of sin. It always seems to go with those two things. It's never explained exactly why, but it's not a way of twisting God's arm. So I prayed and it didn't happen, so now I'm going to pray with fasting and then God will have to do it. Like with the Israelites, if we bring the ark into the camp, then God will have to give us a victory. That didn't work so well. No, this is different. It's, fasting always just seems to be a way of helping genuine prayer. I mean, it's, it's a, <laughs> when you fast, when you confess sins, it's just a visceral reminder. You know what? As miserable as hunger is, sin is a whole lot more miserable. And so I confess my sin and I turn back to you. And if you find yourself aware that you have been wandering deeply, darkly away from God, and he brings you to your senses, whether through a friend or the preaching of his word, there's no rule, there's no rule please hear that but you might want to do that to spend a little bit of time confessing your sin before God and and fasting as you do it it helps you feel what you're praying that's all when you're confessing likewise it's a it's a visceral reminder as I feel the hunger Lord God I need forgiveness more than I even need food right now not a rule just a suggestion worth thinking about So Samuel is the leader God's people need because he calls them back to God. The great reformer Martin Luther, um, the first of his uh, 95 theses was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repent means turn back. In other words, because you and I are continually turning away from God every day, The kind of leader that God's people need is a leader who is continually calling us to come back to God. The leaders that God's people need are leaders who are seen to repent themselves and who weekly, regularly are calling God's people to turn back to God. It's the first kind of leader. First kind of leader. Secondly, he prays for the people. The leader God's people need prays for the people. So we saw in verse 5 that he interceded for the people. And then, which is basically he stood between them and God. That's what interceding means. He stands between them and God, praying for their forgiveness. 
He also promised them, did you see uh, verse 3, that God would deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And they have a a pretty immediate opportunity to put that to the test. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard Israel had assembled at Mizpah, they decided they're going to nip this national movement of unity under God in the bud. And so they, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Now, if you remember last week, you'll know what's going to happen. Well, also Johnny just gave us the reading. But if you, even if you switched off at one point in the reading, if you listened really carefully last week, do you remember, before the battle of Aphek, the Philistines heard and were afraid and won. And here, the, we have hearing and fearing. And if we've been listening, we'll be expecting the winning this time to be the Israelites. They're the ones who hear and fear and will therefore be victorious. And this time they do not rely on superstition but on the supreme being, the almighty God. As they call on Samuel, please cry to God, pray to God, we need his help. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Samuel cried out and the Lord delivered. You see, the leader that God's people need is a leader who prays because the only one who can deliver God's people is God. Now, you and I don't face Philistines. I don't think there are any Philistines left. Um, You may want to say your boss is, but we don't face any literal Philistines. But in a world where there is sudden sickness, financial worries, failure, disappointment, toxic relationships, and ultimately death, we need more than just human help and human strength. We need Almighty God. And so leaders who truly love their people, pray for them. Because it's God's help that we need. Lastly, in this chapter the leader that God's people need reminds them of God's salvation. So what does Samuel do once the Philistines have been defeated? Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And there's that weird song in the, a line in the song, um, Come thou fount of every blessing, here I raise my Ebenezer, and now you're going to understand it. And in a minute you're going to sing it. And oh, you'll sing with meaning like you never have before. So what is it? Ebenezer just means a stone of help. Now, very interesting. Ebenezer was the place the Israelites gathered before they went to fight the Philistines at Aphek last week. Ebenezer was the place where the Israelites did not look to the Lord for help and lost. But now, this stone monolith will stand as a reminder that throughout their history, the only reliable source of help they have is the Lord God Almighty. Thus far, 
The Lord has helped us. Now, you may be aware uh, that future generations do not always share the values of the generations who raise monuments, statues, etc. Hence, they get tossed in the Bristol Channel, possibly rightly, etc. But that's exactly why Samuel's raising this stone monolith. Because he knows that future generations may well have a different set of values. May well think, actually, we won't trust the Lord our God. And he wants to raise a reminder in stone to stand through the generations to tell the future people of Israel, the Lord and only the Lord has been our help and our deliverer. So don't be so quick uh, to turn away from him for we have had no other help. See, the leader the people need is a leader who reminds the people of God's salvation so that they'll keep on trusting in the Lord. Because they trusted him this day, but Samuel knows in one, five, ten years, it may look very different. And you and I need to know there is no way for us to be saved from the judgment of God and the eternal death that every single human being here faces, there is no way to be saved from it except through trust in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place on the cross. And because of that, leaders who love their people will keep on preaching about the cross so that future generations And this people in a year's time and two years' time will keep on remembering to put their trust in the Lord God Almighty. Good leadership does that. So Samuel relentlessly points the people to God in chapter 7 and he teaches them to trust in God alone. And he does it in his preaching, his praying and his building. And the last verses then, we won't really look at them, but they, they show the result of this leadership. You, you heard it as, we, uh, as the reading came through. Is that there's peace, there's stability, there's security, and there's justice. Because that's what good leadership does. It enables all the people to flourish. All the people flourish. However, chapter 7 tells us the kind of leader the people need. Chapter 8, though, sadly, tells us the kind of leader that the people want. And it is nothing like the leader of chapter 7. Samuel has been a a great leader, but as he gets a bit old and doddery, thoughts turn to the future. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Samuel has a succession plan, but his appointment of his sons to take over doesn't meet with universal approval, and for very good reason. So the Israelite leaders, the elders, gather together. Uh, Verse 2. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, your sons don't follow your ways, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Polite of them. The leader they want... Well, firstly, is like the other kings, a king like the other nations have. Give us a king. I mean, (laughs) where do you start? Well, the irony. Well, 
look, this is never going to work, Samuel. You're, you're good, but your sons, they just don't follow your ways. So the solution is we want a king who, when he dies, will hand over rule to his sons. Do, do, you not, do you not see how this is not a solution to that problem, having a hereditary monarchy? But more than irony, there is tragedy. Verse 6, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Israel's great privilege was that they weren't like the nations. They didn't worship an idol and they weren't led by some poxy human king. They, they worshipped the creator God and they, their king was God Almighty. The best thing about being an Israelite was that you were nothing like the other nations. But they rejected God as their king. See, did you notice at the beginning of chapter 7, what did a true turning to God look like? Turn away from the idols of the nations. And now in chapter 8, they say, we want to be just like the nations, with a king like them. They would rather be like everyone else than have the privilege of being the people of God. Years later, Israel's religious leaders would stand before another genuine leader of God's people and shout, we have no king but Caesar. And you... You read verse 8 and you just can't help but shake your head at how stubborn and ungratefully perverse they are. They were rescued from slavery and certain death by God's extraordinary miracles in Egypt and they just spent the whole time moaning, grumbling, complaining and turning back. But verse 8 is not just a window into Israel's perversity, it's also a mirror. See, the Bible rejects racism absolutely, completely which is wonderful news, except when you read a passage like this and realize we can't point a finger at Israel because actually humans are like this, not just the Israelites. And those of us who who would call ourselves Christians, well, if we have enough humility, then we have to recognize that although we've been rescued from death and God's judgment by Jesus' magnificent salvation, Well, if you're anything like me, you spend far too much time grumbling against God and just trying to nudge up a little bit closer to the sins we used to indulge in and and wishing we could just be like everybody else. How tragic that when the Israelites had the king above all kings, they said, no, we don't want him. We, We just want a king like all the other kings. Secondly, though, he, uh, the leader they want is, is one who takes rather than gives. So, uh, verse 9, God says to Samuel, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now, when the reading took place, I wonder, did you notice the word that was repeated in Samuel's description of what the king would be like? Have a look, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16. He will take, he will take, He will take, he will take your daughters, your sons, your work, 
your money, he'll take it for himself. From Roman Caesars to Russian oligarchs, it's always the same story with humans. Those with power use it to benefit themselves. I think the most striking example I heard of this was, a, was an interview where somebody was talking about uh, an election that had recently happened in the country they'd been living in. And the local politician basically said, I've spent my first term lining my pockets and appointing my family members to key jobs that paid really well. In my second term, I'll serve you. If you vote for somebody else, they'll spend their first term lining their pockets and appointing their family members. I've already done that, so just vote for me. He's honest, kind of, at least. It's shocking. And they say, yep, that's what we want. A leader who takes. It's fine by us if we get a king out of it. Thirdly, perhaps most appallingly, they want a king who can be trusted to save them. They just shrug their shoulders at God's warning. Verse 19, the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's why the writer puts chapter 7 before chapter 8. You need a king to fight your battles. You mean like the battle you just had where you didn't even have to raise a sword because the Lord Almighty thundered and the Philistines were completely routed. But no, you need a king to fight your battles. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you don't want the God who swept away Pharaoh's entire army in the Red Sea. You don't want him. Or or the one who smashed down the walls of Jericho or thundered against the Philistines at Aphek. You want a human being waving a sword rather than the Lord who thunders from heaven. Right. I mean, it, it is as stupid as this. You've got... Uh, Tyson Fury, six foot nine, 280 pounds of brutal, unbeatable heavyweight champion. Now imagine he happens to be a friend of yours, you're in the same knitting club, whatever it is, and uh, you know him and he says, look, you know, if you're ever in trouble, just call me and I'll come and protect you. Fantastic. And then uh, you get a call to go to a friend's house party, it's in an up and coming area, People get mugged all the time, and uh, uh, it's London. And, um, and so you phone up Tyson, you say, uh, Tyson, I've got to go to a, a seriously dodgy hood. Um, and uh, the, uh, the ends to which I'm heading uh, could be dangerous. Could you possibly, if you're free this Friday, send your four-year-old daughter to come and protect me? What? You stupid. You've got access to Tyson Fury and you ask if his four-year-old daughter, I mean, she's probably, let's be, let's be honest, his daughter's probably still tougher than half of us, but, but still, you don't trade down from Tyson Fury to his four-year-old daughter unless you're an idiot. We don't want almighty God to fight our battles. We want a human king, please. It's stupid. It's what Israel does. Verse 21, when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. They want a king for sinful reasons and they want a sinful pattern. So how on earth is God going to provide the leader they need? Come along in the next few weeks. Okay, what does this have to say to you and me today? Well, I hope it's no great surprise that the first big lesson for us is that Jesus is the one who answers our great need of leadership as God's people. He not only calls us back to God, but is God. 
who is perfectly interceding, praying for us unceasingly before the throne of God. And he doesn't just uh, raise up a stone to remind us of salvation, but he was raised up himself to be our salvation as he died on the cross. And more than that, he's the opposite of everything that's described in chapter 8. He doesn't take God's place. He is God. And he doesn't take from the people. He gives. He serves. That wonderful verse that we had after the confession as Jesus teaches the disciples and says, you're not to be like the leaders of the nations. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So chapter 7, it points us to the leader that you and I truly need, the Lord Jesus. But chapter 8, I think, is the more poignant and painful chapter. Because I think, as I've reflected this week, that I certainly, and I suspect most of us, are a bit more like the Israelites than we like to admit. In that, look, Jesus doesn't, he's just not enough for us. So we want impressive human leaders. And even if we'd never put it that way, we'd like to be able to trust in humans rather than Jesus. Although we'd never say it. And you see this, I think, in the way that we think about Christian leaders. There's lots of ways to talk about this, but one interesting thing, you may be aware that in the last year or two, there have been a depressing number of scandals where apparently faithful Christian ministers were exposed as actually being domineering bullies who'd really abused their position and their people. And one of the questions that perhaps hasn't received enough attention is why, why did churches put up with this? Now, you've got to be careful. The dynamics of abuse mean that uh, people can be conditioned, coerced into accepting all sorts of harmful behavior. But 1 Samuel 8 suggests there is another thing at play as well, which is that we so desperately want impressive human leaders to trust in that sometimes we are willing to turn a blind eye to all sorts of awful character flaws. Oh, so, long as, so long as we get this headline speaker, this great leader. Oh, it looks different in different cultures. Some cultures want the visionary CEO type who strategizes and brings growth and, well, if a few people get trampled under his vision, you know, that's inevitable. Other cultures want the, the impressive intellectual, the man of deep learning and uh, the brilliant debater. And well, if sometimes that skill is used to, to squash anybody who disagrees with his decisions, well, no one's perfect. And the truth is, look, as someone involved in church leadership, I feel the need to be impressive and I feel inadequate. I just think if I had a PhD, I would be so much more compelling when I told people that you can trust in the intellectual integrity of the gospel. I'd, I'd be a much more effective leader of people if, if, if actually I'd been a, an international sports star or, or a military hero before I became a vicar. You know, wouldn't people follow more? To which the answer is, yes, if the aim was to make followers of you. But I can't save anyone. And the most impressive Christian leader you've ever met can't save anyone either. Only Jesus can. And it matters, therefore, that we are clear about whether we're really trusting in Jesus or whether actually we really trust in impressive leaders. Because if we're not 
really pointing to Jesus, people will not be saved. They, um, I watched a, one of the Brazilian Attenborough documentaries, you know, stunning camera work and slow, breathy voiceover from Attenborough. They're all the same. They're brilliant, but they're all the same. And it was, the, it was one of the ones with turtles. And it's incredible the, the way that um, they're locked into their, their DNA is this... Um, they know where to, where to put their eggs um, and where to bury their eggs. And the eggs hatch at full moon with the moon shining over the sea. So as the little turtles hatch out, they scramble towards the light reflecting off the water and they'll be safe in the sea. The sea is their safety. Problem is, humans have built all along some of those lovely beaches all these massive bars with bright, shiny lights. And so the turtles come out of their eggs and they see brighter lights this way, and so they head and get squashed on the roads or eaten by predators. Because the bright, shiny lights, they, they blind them to the light that can save them in the sea. And the more that our focus and our talk and our confidence is on the celebrity Christian leader, the less it really is on Jesus and he alone can save. And if we, if actually we, we really trust and take confidence in how impressive our leaders are, then our church will never be more than can be achieved by humans. And we miss out on God's power because we're so busy trusting our own. See, the truth is Jesus has all the impressive we need and we could want. And if we want to see God at work with his mighty power amongst us, we don't need impressive leaders or celebrity ministers. We just need a deeper confidence and knowledge, an experiential knowledge of how awesome Jesus is. And he's better than anybody else. There's a brilliant organization called Christians in Sport. They support um, Christians uh, from professional to even right the way down to my sort of level of sport. And, but they say, I remember talking to the, one of the directors and he said, as soon as people find out that there's a couple of Premier League players um, who they support who are Christians, they go, oh, could you send them to us to give a talk? Because they think, if only I can bring my friends to hear this Premier League player, wow, they'll come and they'll hear and, and they'll become Christians. And he says, the truth is, lots of people will come to hear them. But actually, it, it's a very ineffective because people, they're just wowed by the celebrity. And so if that Premier League player, then like the rest of us Christians, has struggles and messes up, then, oh, all the people who were wowed by them just drift away. And actually they said, they found that they've been, the organization has been much, much more effective when they've said, no, actually that's not what we're about. We want to introduce sportsmen and women of every level to Jesus and equip sportsmen and women to tell their friends about Jesus. And as they've done so, they find Jesus is a whole lot more impressive than a Premier League player. And so many more people have come to a deep, rich trust in Jesus as a result. See, any time you and I look to trust in Christian leaders and really take our confidence from how amazing they are, rather than Jesus, we're trading down. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian yet, can I say please don't be put off by the ordinariness of church and its leaders. That's the point. Jesus is who we want to talk about and he is anything but ordinary. But don't let me put you off trust in him. 
And for those of us who are Christians, don't, don't allow yourself to be put off from sharing the gospel and inviting people to church by your ordinariness and our weakness. Jesus is almighty God and he has the power to save. Point people to him. Trust in him. Boast about him. He has all the impressive you and I need. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, if we're honest, we do, we long to feel impressive and to have impressive humans to point to. Help us to see through, uh, through these wonderful chapters in 1 Samuel how foolish, how stupid that is. Help us instead to rejoice that although our God is not seen, he is almighty. And so we pray that we would grow in our confidence in his salvation and his daily provision and protection. And that we would be bold to live for him and speak for him, knowing that even ordinary people like us can invite others to meet the extraordinary Jesus. Amen.